All right, so this was meant to be one message, but you received it so well it became two messages. And then you received it so well it's become three messages. So uh, I want you just to put your hands on yourself, and I want you to begin to pray in the Spirit for yourself. Just start to pray out loud, everybody. Come on, let's pray. We're praying something like, Lord, give me eyes that see, ears that hear. Lord, a heart and mind to know and understand your word. Let, Lord, your word would gain entrance into my heart, into my life, and bring about change. Lord, we don't want to be like the foolish builder who built his house on the sand. We want to be like the wise builder who built his house on the rock. The one who was wise, who built his house on the rock, is the one that hears the word and does the word. Lord, we want to be doers of your word, not hearers only. Father, that your word will make way in our hearts. That's what we pray. And we're saying, Lord, we humbly receive the engrafted word, which is powerful to save us. And we thank you for it. Lord, it's a word. Your word is like a fire in our bones, shut up in our bones. It's a hammer that breaks rock. Father, break any hardness. Give us supple hearts. Give us, Lord, hearts and minds to know, hear, and understand. Let your word have access to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all agreed, said, amen, amen. So I want to review last week and the week before we were talking about Easter Sunday. We were talking about the fact of that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Paul talks about this mystical union between us as believers and of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it incredible that just by our faith in Him, we became so joined to Him that the apostle says that we actually died with Him. Amen. And in the process of death, the old John, the old you, was also crucified with Him. Is that okay? We were therefore buried with him, and that's the prefigurement of water baptism, and water baptism is an important part of our salvation. It's just not an optional extra. He who believes and is baptized. It's important. And so we were initiated mystically, this union into his death and his burial, but thank God it didn't just stop there. That when he rose we rose with him. When he ascended, we were raised with him. He didn't leave us in this world powerless. He left us as the most powerful group of people on the face of the planet. With God inside of us, with Christ inside of us. Which means that we should be the most different group of people on the face of the planet. Is that okay? It also means with resident, indwelling power, we should be the most glorious people <laughs> on earth. We should be the most holy people on earth, the most likable people on earth, the nicest people on earth. It means that we should be the most employable people on earth. It means that we should be the best bosses on the face of the planet because of Christ who is inside of us. Is that okay? And it's sad that very often Christians give Christianity a bad name. Even, you know, one of the great spiritual leaders said, uh, you know, Dr. Wayne Dyer says the same thing. I love the Bible. And he says, and I love Christ. He says, I don't really like the Christians so much. <laughs> but I love the Christians. I love the church. Because she is the wife of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't knock the church. I don't criticize the church because Jesus has a jealous, protective love for the church. And uh, I was talking to people once and they were saying, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And I said, I guarantee you, if I came to your workplace, I'd find your workplace is full of hypocrites, you being one. Everybody say, Amen. And the thing is, we are all works in progress. Isn't that right? And it shouldn't just remain an excuse that I'm a work in progress. There was a bumper sticker in the days when you used to get chrome bumpers because then it was easy to scratch off. And it would say things like, I'm forgiven, not perfect. And sometimes that can be an excuse. Well, I'm forgiven, I'm not perfect. But the goal is perfection. Is that right? And so the Apostle Paul talks about it when he writes, to this end I labor, Struggling with all his energy, the NIV, which so powerfully works in me. And my goal, I put that word in myself, 
My purpose is to present every man and woman under my ministry. My goal is to present them perfect in Christ. Is that okay? And that's the goal of the whole of the fivefold ministry. That's the goal of every pastor and every teacher. It's my goal is to present you perfect in Christ. So Paul talks about the fact of ministries are there to prepare the saints for the works of service, that each part doing its work in love, every member, will cause the body of Christ to grow up in all things into Christ, who is the head. And he talks about in the King James, unto the perfect man. So if you want to know what God's goal for you looks like, it looks exactly like Jesus. In other words, Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, with the church and the Word, has a goal, and that is your perfection. It means your character development. It means that you become like Christ, that you become holy. Is that okay? That's why I wanted you to pray for yourself, because we're on a track. We're on, you know, God is on a track with us. And I spoke about it last week, the fact that many verses, Paul talks about the fact that we are strengthened with all might in the inner man. So we've got resident indwelling power, which means that we can change. You can teach old dogs new tricks. It means that we can change. I can't help but I was born this way. No, we can change because we have his power inside of us. So I'm talking part three, power for your life. And let me just give you a little bit of a, a background. Remember last week we spoke about 10 things not to let the old man in. And I just shared a couple of things with you on how to take power back for your life. Because this world is not conducive to you living the Christ life. And so you're going against the flow, against the flood. But our greatest enemy always, the greatest hindrance to sanctification always, is not your wife. It's not your husband. It's not your children. It's not your boss. It's not, it's not those horrible people at work. The greatest hindrance to your sanctification is you and me to mine. Is that okay? And so I want to just look at very quickly a little bit of background. Right the way through the Old Testament, God used different trees or different plants to represent his people. There was the pomegranate. At one stage, he tells the parable through one of the prophets, you know, let's go to the olive tree and ask him if he'll be king. Let's go to the fig tree, ask him if he'll be the king. Let's go to the vine and ask him if he'll be king. No, then they go to the bramble bush, you know, the thorn bush, and say, will you be king? <laughs> and the, the bramble says, yeah, no, I'll be your king. But if, if you don't submit, fire will come out and destroy you, and uh, you need to continue to live in my shadow. Now, how many of you know a thorn bush doesn't give much shade? A bramble bush doesn't give much shade. But it's interesting that the bramble was the one that was destined for fire. And so all three trees are, or plants, because the vine is not a tree, but let's call it a tree, okay, for the sake of it, becomes a symbol for the people of God, yeah. as well as the pomegranate tree, the fruitfulness. And so, in Jeremiah 2.21, this is what God said, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? So the picture of the vine is one that I'm going to track this morning. The fig tree, I deal with it quite extensively in my book, which was Pharisaical religion, you know, which was all works and no fruit. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And so this became prophetic all the way through. The fig tree takes over in the story when it represented just the bad fruit or no fruit concerning Israel and the religious leaders, scribes and the Pharisees. But all the way through into Matthew 21, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. This is Jesus. Now he's quoting Isaiah 5. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruits. And you know the story that killed the servants, and eventually he sent the son. 
And they said, well, let's kill him, then we get the inheritance. And he was talking directly to the scribes and Pharisees, because that's what they did with Jesus. They killed him, the son of the owner of the vineyard. Then in chapter 13, Jesus tells another parable. In verses 6 to 9, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. Now he's got a vineyard, but he's planted a fig tree in it. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it incredible how Scripture ties together? Because even John the Baptist, when the scribes and the Pharisees came to be baptized, he said to them, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And he spoke about producing fruit in keeping with repentance. And he said to them, it's more or less too late because the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. And he was saying to the fig tree of religion, you're going to be cut down. That's even why Jesus, when he walked past the fig tree, found no fruit on it, he cursed it. And the Bible says it began to drive from the roots upwards. Because what he was saying was, I'm judging self-righteous, dead work, fruitless religion, and I'm going to plant something different and tend to something different, and it is going to produce fruit. And so he says, the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it take up the soil? So the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig it around and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut down. For three and a half years, Jesus looked for fruit with the Pharisees, the scribes, with religion, found no work. It was then cut down with the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Amen. And so Jesus tells the parable in Matthew chapter 7 that a good tree can only bear good fruit. A bad tree cannot bear bad fruit. Now, this is good news. Is that okay? Because he said, thus by their fruit you will recognize what kind of tree it is. If you see apples, you know it's an apple tree. If you see pears, you know it's a pear tree. If you see the fruit of the Spirit, you know it's a Christian tree. Hallelujah. And so you will recognize the tree by its fruit. But there's one passage of Scripture. Now, it's interesting that the prophet Ezekiel talks about the fact that Jerusalem, with its temple, was the vine and the people were the branches. That was the prophet Ezekiel. So Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus comes along in John chapter 15 and he says, I am the vine. It's not the city. It's not this temple. I'm the vine. My father is the husbandman, King James, the gardener, NIV. So I am the vine and you are the branches. Now this is where it really becomes powerfully interesting If there's one passage in the Bible that clearly shows, number one, that God loves us as individuals, it's this parable. God doesn't deal with us en masse. God deals with us as individuals. That's even why last week, I think nearly everybody came forward and they said, Pastor John, that message was for me this morning. It shows a personal God. I was preaching to all of you, but yet God by His Spirit is speaking to each heart individually. God is into the individual Christian. Is that right? And so this passage shows that He loves us. It shows that He's committed to our maturity. We're going to read the verses in a moment. There is no other passage that shows more clearly that God has got us in a process a walk with Him, a relationship with Him, a personalized, individualized walk with God. God knows everything about you, good and bad. Amen. Amen. He knows you better than you know yourself, and He's committed to walking with you in a process to bring you to a place of fruitfulness. Powerful passage. And uh, you know He's got a personal track with you. And all of God's dealings with you, this passage shows us, that God is not dealing with you to punish you. All of God's dealings are not punitive. They are all training. They are all to develop us. There's nowhere in the Bible where God punishes for punishment's sake. If God deals with us, it's not in punishment. It's in discipling. It's in training. It's very interesting that in this passage, John is talking about pruning. John chapter 15, we'll come to it now. But there are three words that are more or less used interchangeably. He talks about the fact that he's cleaning you, purging you, and pruning you. 
And so I want you to understand everything that's happening to you. God's right there. God is involved. Is that right? God doesn't miss a thing. He's walking this walk with you. He's standing with you when you're living life. Amen? He's with you when you overcome. He's with you when you blow it. He's walking you through this life. His goal is to produce his character in you so that he might be glorified. Amen? And so James tells us, James says, when you're going through painful trials of all kinds, don't be surprised. And I think when we start going through hard times, we're really shocked because sometimes we equate the difficult times with the fact that you're in glory and victory and God is really blessing. And then we equate some of the times when it's a little bit tough, we equate that with, you know, there's something wrong in my life. I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I've sinned secretly and God has withdrawn his presence from me or something like that. It's not the blessing, you know. And when someone comes along and says, man, God has been so good to me. You know, someone put 10,000 rand in my account this week right at the last moment. And you didn't get 10,000 rand in your account. And you're still facing the bills, you know. And then you're standing there thinking, well, then why isn't God so good to me if God is so good? Amen? And so, so you know, people will say, yeah, man, God is so good to me. Listen, when you're going through tough times, God is being just as good to you. Okay, just say amen just for fun. Just, yeah. Now, when you're facing difficulty and it's hard and it's dark, and it, God has been good to you. Amen? Because what he's doing is he's just getting deep down and personal and saying, man, we're going to bring you through into victory. So let's read. John chapter 15, verse 1 to 9. I am the true vine. It's not Jerusalem. It's not the temple. My father is the gardener. He cuts off or taketh away. This is the King James translation. The NIV says he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That's an unfortunate translation from the original. Branches are very precious to the vine dresser. He doesn't cut any branch off. Is that okay? Say it after me. He doesn't cut any branch off. He doesn't. Watch King James. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Now that translated correctly would be, he lifts it up. In other words, he looks at the vine, because you know how the vine grows, and then they tie the branches onto strands of wire, whatever, onto a frame, and any branch that is hanging down, he lifts it up and he ties it, and he even cleans it. Pastor Shaw was telling us one day, we were talking about this whole thing about dust, and he said he was driving through, it was a farmer's orchard, and as he went in, because there's dirt roads everywhere, and it said, drive slowly, dust kills. So does the dust of naturalness kill. Psalms tells us that the soul inclines towards the dust, but the spirit inclines towards God. Okay? And there are times when we get dusty. In other words, when the natural, when we let the old man in and the branch is hanging down, it's not so fruitful and it's covered in dust. He comes as the vine dresser. He lifts the branch up. He doesn't cut it off. This is what it means. He taketh away. He's lifting it up. He exalts it. He encourages it. He whispers in your ear through sermons, in your personal study, you're going to make it. You're going to be okay. You're my child. Is that all right? And he fastens you back onto the trellis, and uh, he starts to wash it off. And he says, come on, let's go for it. We'll have a look at it now. And my goal in doing this, Jesus, as the vine dresser is, to produce fruit again or to produce even more fruit. So no branch is ever cut off. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, cleans it. He prunes it that it may bring forth more fruit. Come on. In your rejection, God is dealing with the branch. Because maybe, just maybe, you value people's acceptance of you more than you value God's acceptance. We say it. We say it. No, 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 no. You know, I value God's acceptance you know, as long as God accepts me. Just until somebody rejects you. Yep. Then you fall apart. You throw a tantrum. Your life doesn't mean anything anymore and all of that kind of thing. But I just thought a few days ago you said, you know, and God's going, <clears throat> how about that one then, eh? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying he initiates it, but he surely does use it. Yeah. I mean, it's going to happen. You are going to be misunderstood. Somebody is going to say or does something that hurts you. Something will happen. 
And then at that moment, God is right there and saying, okay, that hit a sore spot. Let's deal with this now. That's why I'm saying God is good all the time. And sometimes, you know, when somebody else is going, whoa, God is so good. Just anonymous, 10,000 rand in my account. Woohoo! And they're telling you. And you've got probably a greater need than them. And you're thinking, well, where is God? And maybe God's going like, I'm not going to do it that way. Because first of all, what we need to deal with is that you've got your eyes on people for your supply. And not on me. Maybe that's why you were disappointed when they said that or hurt when they said that. And then God's going, yeah, it's okay, you know. We're going to walk a different route with your provision. I might open extra hours for you to work. I want you to know God is so personal. It's so tailor-made. He knows exactly what you need. Is that all right? He knows exactly what you need. I said it to one of my elders one day. He went on a wobble. You know, his attitude wasn't good. And when I went to go and see him, and I just said, look what's happening. He started to just pour out at what a terrible pastor and leader I am. So, you know, and I know I'm an excellent pastor. I know I'm a really good leader. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, he's telling me, and I looked at him and I said, you know what? Do you know why God brought you to this church? I'm exactly what you need. So enjoy it. God will use my shortcomings. And then I'm exactly who you needed. If there's anything about me that irritates you, don't tell me. No, come and... If there's anything about me that irritates you, I want you to know it's not me that God is working on. It's you. That person that just makes you a hackle stander, you know, that person reminds you of someone in your life that has hurt you, has done something. And God is so good. It doesn't matter. You can quit your job and go. There will be one of those people there. You can get all offended and leave this church. Different name, different face, same personality. You're going to go to another church and you're going to meet brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so and you're going to look at them after a little while and go like, eek. This reminds me of Pastor John in my previous church. What's happening? And God's going, I'm so committed to you. I'm going to track you down. You can run, but you can't hide. Woo-hoo. Remember the day you got saved and you said, Jesus, you're Lord. He was saying, that's what I was waiting for. You're Lord of my life. You can do whatever you want. You know, in those holy moments, we make those crazy prayers. Can do what you ever want with me, Lord. Break me, make me, shake me. And he goes, oh, thank you, angels, my witnesses. All right, let's go. And then starts the process, the process called sanctification. Sometimes it feels like major heart surgery, open heart surgery. Sometimes... It's painful when God begins to deal with us. One of the things that I found, God has got, and I've said this before, God's got two methods by which two modes of transport by which he sends answers to prayers. And there's one is rockets and the other is tortoises. And when you go, God, help, I need 10,000 rand. says to the angel, bring the tortoise, puts it on, the tortoise starts walking. You know, and here comes the tortoise with your 10,000 rand because it always feels late. Isn't that right? But when you say, God, make me holy, bring the rockets. <laughs> Straight answer. Before you've even exited the service, somebody's offended you. And the rocket arrived. It's an amazing. But it just shows us how incredibly committed to our character change God is. Amen. And so he lifts up every branch back to our verses that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it will be even more fruitful. So what is God after? Fruit in our lives. What fruit? He's looking for the fruit of lives we impact. He's looking for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Anything that can be described as fruit. God is looking for the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. He's looking for fruit of people's lives that we touch and change. All the same thing. Yeah. 
And so God's looking for fruitfulness. And he says this, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And so, again, it speaks about a personal relationship with Jesus. The most fruitful, the most productive your life will ever be, will be out of the deepest relationship that you've ever had with Christ. The more connected you are with Him, the more fruitful your life becomes. The closer, the more at peace you are. The closer you are to Him, the more you will hear His voice. The more He will sustain you, the more He will empower you. I like what one theologian said, we mustn't by our practice be atheists. We mustn't live our lives as atheists that don't believe in God. He says, because we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus Christ, but then we walk away from Him and we live our lives the way we want. We are practicing atheists, but believing Christians. And so we mustn't be practicing atheists. We need to be connected. We need to be abiding in Christ. Am I doing okay so far? If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away. So if we don't remain in him, that branch, he says, you are like a branch that is thrown away. In other words, you can produce no fruit, you're good for nothing. And he's talking about those who are not connected to Christ. Those are the unbelievers. So no branch does he cut off. Is that okay? He does not cut you off. He does not. He prunes you. But for those who are not in the vine, they become useless ones, and they are like ones that are thrown away. God doesn't throw anyone away. That's their choice. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. And this is the cleaning. This is the purging. If we remain in Him, remain in love with Him, let His words abide in us. I missed the verse, but I think it's, um, it's at the top there. You are already clean because the word I have spoken to you. So how many are clean? All of us are clean. Why? Because of the word. Now, how does He do the cleaning? By the word. I'm already clean because of the word, and I've accepted Him. I'm connected. I'm abiding in Him. His words abide in me. He abides in me, and I abide in His love for me and in the knowledge of his love. And so this intimacy causes me to go to his word. Is that right? Yeah. And that's what I love about ACF. You love the word of God. You love it when we teach the word. And so the word of God has got priority. So the pruning, the pruning comes like this. When somebody does something, when you hurt, when you blow it out of your own accord, and you are conscious of His Word, God is able to remind you of His Word, or you hear the Word preached, or you read in that week in the Word something, and there is a, an impact on your heart by the Holy Spirit concerning that particular verse. Know then that God is doing a pruning work. Amen. What He's doing is He's washing you by the Word, and He's aligning you to the Word. So the pruning He does, the pruning He does is by the Word. So... If it was suffering, if it was difficulty, Africa would be the most holy country in the world. There's a lot of people that struggle, but it's not the struggling. It's the response to God. It's the response to His Word in your struggles that determines the character growth. Is that okay? And so the best place that I can find it for me is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. You all got it? 1 Corinthians 2. So I'm now going to talk about the pruning by the Word. How does God do it? So we know He prunes us. We know God uses whatever situation. We know God is coming to us and looking at our lives, and uh, He's the great fruit inspector because He wants fruitfulness. That's what He expects. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, He says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom amongst the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. That's the Pharisaical religion. They were coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom in a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. Not Pontius Pilate, not Herod, not the chief priest, not the rulers of the synagogues, not nobody. Those were the rulers. 
not the demons, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, quoting from Isaiah, the things God has prepared for those who love him. He says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Previously, it was true. It's amazing how many preachers will preach about you know, heaven is such a wonderful place that our eyes hasn't seen, our ear hasn't heard, and it, you know, we can't conceive how glorious heaven is. It's not talking about heaven. It's talking about our Christian walk, our Christian lives. And so he says, but God, King James says it better, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. So everybody say God reveals by his Spirit. Now, he talks about mystery things, hidden things. Now, he's talking about the fact of Christ who was the secret, who was the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now through apostolic preaching, he's been revealed. Woo! He's been opened up. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the opening. And so he's opened. The mystery has been opened to us so that our eyes see, our ears hear. It enters into our hearts and minds. We can conceive the things that God has prepared for us who love him. Amen? We can apprehend it by the Spirit. And he says, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his own spirit within him? So your spirit in you knows your thoughts. Okay? So this becomes a symbol of God. Same way God's spirit in him knows the thoughts of God. Everything that he has in mind for us. So God knows. His mind is full of thoughts for us. And his spirit knows the thoughts. Good? Now, it's not too big a jump to jump from there and say, the word of God is a book concerning the thoughts God has for us. Because it's his word. So everything from his mind is conceptualized. It's, it's laid down in the word. So the spirit of God inside God knows the thoughts of God. Now, Paul goes on to talk about the fact now this same spirit of God is in us, who knows the mind of God and what he has in mind for us. Paul ends this passage by saying, now we have the mind of Christ. Previously, we did not have in mind the things of God. Because when we became born again, he changed our minds and there's a spirit component attached to our minds. That's why Paul says, be made new in the spirit of your mind. An unrenewed mind can't relate to the spirit of God. But the God kind of mind, who has the spirit of the mind awakened, is the mind of Christ. Now the spirit can communicate to your mind the things of God. And suddenly, it's not a mystery. Suddenly... It's a revealed thing. Suddenly when the Spirit goes, it's this. Inside of us we go, oh wow, thank you Jesus, this is awesome. That's why he ends this passage by saying, now you have or we have the mind of Christ. So he says, I've run ahead. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, says Paul, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Now listen, NIV says this, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. I'm going to put it in the King James. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. It says, I love what the King James says. Now I just want you to listen to this. This is going to help you to understand how God does the pruning. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual with spiritual. Everybody say comparing. So in other words, what the Spirit does in us, when God begins speaking, when God begins to prune or to cleanse, He highlights His word and then he does a comparison. He is comparing spiritual with spiritual. 
The interesting thing, that Greek word there is synchronous. And synchronous means this. It means to compare with a view in mind. So I'm putting my own words a little bit. To compare. In other words, the word synchronous means I note the similarities and I note the differences. But the goal in me noting similarities and differences is to synchronize the similarities, to bring you in line with. And then that word synchronous, where the word we've got the English word compare, becomes very, 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 very similar to an English word we have. It almost sounds the same, synchronize. And so, in other words, when I'm doing something, I've just blown it, and I've lost my temper or whatever, and suddenly the Holy Spirit is there. He doesn't so much convict me, my conscience does that. But what he does, he does a work of convincing or persuading. So what he does is he highlights the truth, and he notes for me similarities and differences to the truth, so that I can then be synchronized with the truth. Is that okay? And that's how he does it. He trains us. I don't know if you've ever noticed that you keep learning the lesson until it's learned. Have you ever discovered that in your life? Amen. God is so incredible at replaying the scene for you. And we see it, you know, in the symbolism of Israel going around the mountain. And uh, how many times did they come to water? How many times were they thirsty? How many times did God have to feed them? Just look at the disciples. I mean, there wasn't only one feeding of a multitude. There was two. One 5,000, one 4,000. And then one time they're in a boat. And they don't have bread. And now there's only 13 of them. 12 plus Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, beware of the bread of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees. They're looking at each other and going like, what's he talking about? Is it yeast, bread, bread. He must be talking about bread. He must be talking about bread. Okay, he's talking about bread. And what was Jesus doing? Jesus was just, they failed the 5,000 to understand its truth. They failed the 4,000 to understand its truth. Now in the boat, okay, okay now there's just 12 of us now, 13 of us. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. I must be talking about bread. It even notes in Mark's gospel, they start looking around for bread in the boat. And it says they can't find any except one loaf. So I think it must have been Peter going like, cool, we've got at least one loaf. And Jesus looks at them goes like, are you guys hard-hearted or don't you understand? And they're going like, no, Jesus. Now we're with you. And Jesus didn't take it like it. He said, when I fed the 5,000, how many loaves and fishes? Yeah. And how many basketfuls did you pick up? Yeah. When I fed the 4,000, mm. how many loaves and fishes? What was left over? Yeah. For heaven's sake, there's 12 of us. I don't need anything to give you bread. Yeah. Because he fed more people with less fish and bread. Yes. Less people, 4,000, there was more fish and bread. So basically what he was trying to teach the disciples is, I don't even need fish and bread. Yeah. I can feed you. Yeah. They hadn't learned the lesson. So three occasions with bread. What was Jesus trying to reinforce in their lives? Just believe. Yeah. Yeah. How many of you know it was a pruning work? Yeah. How many storms had they been in? Jesus falls asleep. They wake him. Don't you care that we're perishing? He says, hey guys. You know, how long must I be with you? Why are you so slow of heart and hard to believe? And he stands up and he calms the storms. What was he trying to teach them? From way back, he was trying to teach them, you have authority over storms. Because one verse actually says, and immediately they were on the other side. They should have listened to what he said. He said, let's cross over. He didn't say, we're going to try and cross over, but we're going to die in the process of getting over. He said, cross over. So they could have said, hey, this is the first crossover service. Yeah. <laughs> We're having a crossover meeting. <laughs> no, 
what was Jesus trying to say? But I said we're going to the other side. You could have stood up and said to the storms, the waves, be quiet. Can you see how God is always preparing? So God gives us an opportunity. What's he looking to do? He's looking to synchronize us with his word. Is that okay? And so he notes similarities and differences. Then he comes in and he goes like, okay, you're, you're a little bit out of line here. And what is the truth about the situation? This is training. It's not yeah. punishment. It's not punitive. It's training. Yeah. So God gives us opportunities all the time to be spiritual. All right. It's interesting. One of the big key things is when it comes to sanctification, when it comes to growth in our Christian lives, one of the key, key, key things for character change is to own it. I like what Helen, Pastor Helen used to often say, if you don't own it, you can't change it. Yep. It's amazing, we can trace it right back to the garden, that when God confronts us, when God speaks to us, when our wives speak to us, when our husbands speak to us, when we are confronted by incorrect behavior, it's amazing how powerfully self-justified we can be. Everybody say, amen. amen. We can be powerfully self-justified. Isn't it amazing? I find it, for me, it's easier to be humble with God than with Bev. Amen. I'll fight her tooth and nail. You know, go, no, that's not true. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. It's not right. Uh, you know, but Bev's very good at busting me, you know. She, she's very good at pointing out the truth. But the amazing thing is we need to own it before we can change it, okay? So this is not an introspection, navel-gazing meeting or message, but if we want to grow, if we're serious about growing, we need to be truthful with ourselves about ourselves. Is that okay? And so, fortunately, this is the last in the series, so I can really hurt you this week. Okay. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul talks about it. He said, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death in every sense of the meaning of that word. We need to learn how to have a godly sorrow and to be able to say sorry to the Lord and sort ourselves out and say sorry to people, people that we've hurt, and pick ourselves up and get going on again with our Christian walk. Is that okay? Yeah. Because he said godly sorrow brings the sense of forgiveness and we don't remain in regret. But worldly sorrow, you remain in regret because there's no change. And that's where condemnation does come in and guilt does plague you. Can I just throw something in now? Can I just throw it in? So this is the thing. There's a lot of preachers who, and I'm a grace preacher. There's a lot of preachers who preach concerning grace. And that verse, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You know that verse? And they think that as Christians... We should never, ever have twinges of conscience about anything. Oh, no. There's one pastor that is just communicating with me now, and his pastor is teaching, just resist the feelings of condemnation if you sinned. In three or four days, it'll go away. And he's asking me my advice. I said to him, brother, that is sacrificing one truth for another. God has given you a conscience educated by the word to speak to you and to tell you that what you're doing now is wrong. That's right. And you heed that conscience educated by the Spirit, okay, because consciences are trained. So we have a conscience that's renewed, a mind that is sprinkled with clean water to cleanse us from an evil conscience. Because there was a time when we had an evil conscience. Our consciences would tell us we were evil. But now our consciences have been cleansed to tell us that we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But that same conscience... That same conscience will tell you when the comparison comes and the Holy Spirit starts checking, you know, you know, the good and the not so good. And when that's highlights, if there's a twinge of conscience, Paul tells us you obey that because to disobey it is sin. Is that okay? And it becomes a seared conscience if you continue disobeying it. So God has given us a conscience that is activated by the Spirit. So when your conscience starts to prick, start to listen. 
if it is an unrenewed conscience, train it by the word. But eventually your conscience is trained by the word. And then the conscience is the little, it's the little red light flashing, warning from the spirit to say, all right, I'm checking the boxes. And I'm checking boxes for comparison's sake. And I, I can't you know, tick these boxes because this is not the good side. Is it okay? And so it leaves regret if there's worldly sorrow but not godly sorrow. I'm just going to quickly give you three examples. 1 Samuel chapter 15, you can look up the exact verses, but 24 and 40, there was two kings in Israel, the first king and the second king. first king was Saul. And one day God gave him a commission via the prophet Samuel and said to him, you have to go and take on the Amalekites and destroy them destroy flocks and herds, everything, men, women, and children, the king, you put them all to death. I think it might have been King Agag. I think it was. But anyway, and when Samuel came, Samuel told him, wait, don't make any sacrifices until I get there. They go, they defeat the Amalekites. Saul keeps the king alive, keeps many of the troops alive, and takes all of the herds, flocks and herds, and gold for himself. When Samuel comes there, he's busy sacrificing because Samuel took a little bit long. And Samuel came and spoke to him, you've stepped into a different office. You're not the priest or the priest prophet. You're the king. I told you to wait. Why are you sacrificing? Now, well, the people were, you know, and you took a bit long and all of this kind of thing. Now, suddenly, it's Samuel's fault. Are you all listening? Because this is now the nuts and bolts for the next 15 minutes. Suddenly, it's Samuel's fault. And he says, by the way, what is all this bleating of sheep and lowing of cattle I hear? And, oh, who is this? This looks like the king of the Amalekites. No, well, you know, I, I thought and I thought. And that's where Samuel made that very famous, almost New Testament statement. He said, is not to obey, you know, the sin of disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. Obedience. It says, is not to obey better than the fat of rams and to heed better than sacrifices? And he said, disobedience is like the sin of witchcraft because you've rebelled. Is that all right, church? Yeah. Are you all listening? Yeah. And so Samuel rebukes Saul. Saul says to him, okay, 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 I've sinned. But please, just come with me. Let's go to the people and, and they just honor me in front of the people for the people's sake. King Saul. In other words, yeah, I've blown it, but really, you know, but, but don't let anybody know. You know, just keep just honoring me as the king in front of the people. And that was the day when the kingdom was taken from Saul. So there was another king. His name was David. What David did, it's interesting, Saul was not forgiven in essence because it was worldly sorrow. It left a regret. Are you all following? And so Nathan comes to David, starts telling him a story. In the city, there's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man's got lots of sheep. Poor man's got one. And the rich man one day goes and takes the little sheep and tells this whole story. What do you think should be done with the, with the rich man? And David, you know, justice must be done and, you know, must be taken back. And then this is what must happen to that guy. And then Nathan's famous words, and he says, you're that man. And then he begins to tell him about what he did with Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, how he arranged to have him murdered. Now, if I look at David and I look at Saul, what David did, my goodness, was much worse. Takes Bathsheba to himself, but organizes his husband to be killed in, in battle. And, and I mean, it's just wicked. But yet David finds forgiveness. Saul not. And David just said one sentence to Nathan. He said, I'm guilty. I'm putting in my own words. I'm guilty. I am. I, I've, I've sinned against God. You can read the record of his prayer in Psalm 51. He saw Saul. He saw God remove his spirit from Saul. Or the spirit leave Saul because of his unrepentance. And he says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You read the depth of his repentance. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't even have to be tears. But it needs to be genuine and sincere. Is everybody following me? I'm just cutting it short for time. There's another couple in the Bible when confronted. And it's the original fathers. Adam and Eve. 
But part of it was he was right, I believe. Because when God said, why are you hiding? Why, you know, when we're naked and ashamed and afraid, so we hid. And then God says, Adam, what did you do? He says, it's the woman, the wife you gave me. It's her. Now that part's biblical. <laughs> I mean, there it's written, you know. But he goes like, no, it's the woman you, you gave me. So now in one sentence, it's Eve's fault and God's fault. If the woman you gave me, you, God, you know I can't handle temptation, you know? So it's actually your fault. And I mean, why do you give me that stupid woman, you know? I mean, what's the matter with her? You know, taking the fruit and eating and giving it to me. In one sentence, there was this blame shift. Isn't it amazing how we can blame shift? No, 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 it's not me. It was, you know, I, I, you know, I was born like this. My dad used to have a bad temper, you know, or, or something. We'll find an excuse, but at times it's outright God. God, you know, you understand. You should not allow me to go through this. You know I can't handle it. And so that blame shift thing. But David teaches us how we need to repent, you know. And, and it doesn't have to be with snot and prana. It doesn't have to be even with tears as long as it's with sincerity. That's right. I mean, it can have all those other things. But it's interesting when God then turns to the woman, to Eve, and he says, Eve, what have you done? And he goes, it was the devil. <laughs> the devil made me. Anybody will blame anybody or anything except ourselves. Yeah. And this week we were with friends of ours, and we were just chatting around the lunch table, and we were laughing hysterically because, you know, Bev would tell me, no, John's terrible with keys which I'm not. I'm actually really good with keys. But then they would be laughing hysterically, and the wives were just pointing out, us husbands, what we do. You know? And it was just interesting to watch our responses. And then when we turned around and we were saying, yeah, but the wives, this is what they do, and their defense mechanisms coming up. You know? And so we were having a good laugh. At each other because now we're all justifying our actions and saying, you know, really, you know, no, that's not me. I'm not like that. I'm, I don't. You know? you know, to be fair, to be fair, I don't do that. And, you know, very often, repentance is the hardest thing that we do, but it's the most necessary. And just to own it and say, okay, I'm really sorry I'm wrong. Then God can begin to work on us. Then God can begin yeah. to change us. Is that okay? And uh, Daniel stands out. One of the things that I find when another believer, especially somebody does something that's not so nice to me. One of the things that, and I remember there was a time in the church that it was almost like we would judge those people, you know? And the next thing I saw them walking down the road and I stopped picking them up and they didn't remember me and they'd lost their jobs and lost us. You see, it was because they spoke out against me. Remember there was a time in the church it was like it was so judgmental. I want to just listen to this passage of Scripture. And very often, if we don't project away from ourselves, if we don't blame shift, one of the things that we try to do is to justify in a certain way. And so, you know, if we've preached three series basically on this pruning work and power for your lives, I want you to know God is going to be working on our lives. Is that okay? And so you're going to have plenty of opportunity to exercise the things that I'm teaching. Is that okay? And so will I. This story struck me last week in the middle of my sermon. It struck me, and I hadn't included it in the message. You ready to hear? Two, three minutes. Here it goes. In John 21, Jesus comes to Peter and, uh, from verses 18 to 23. How many of you remember Peter said, Jesus, I'll die with you. I'll never forsake you. Remember Peter? And then Jesus turns to him and says, Satan has desired to sift all of you like wheat, but I've prayed for all of you. And Peter, when you turn, when you repent, go back and strengthen your brothers. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Now it comes time for the crucifixion. Jesus arrested. And uh, a little woman maid says, but aren't you one of his disciples, his followers? And was, you know the story. And Peter goes into that epic denial of Jesus, three times denying him. And then the rooster crows, because Jesus said, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Mm. I can only imagine the devastation Peter must have felt. 
The amazing thing is, here's how Jesus lifts the branches. He didn't cut Peter off. Paul tells us when Jesus was resurrected, he appeared first, first to Peter. In his resurrection life, the first person that was on Jesus' mind was Peter. He blew it for three days. He's been feeling terrible. So he pierced him first. Hey, Peter, who I'm alive. What a work of restoration that was. That's an example of lifting a branch up. Because Peter and all of them were hiding in fear of the Jews. And then it tells us here in John 21, they're out fishing. It seemed like from the text Peter instigated. He didn't know what to do. Where are you going, Peter? Well, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I was doing before. I don't know what else to do. You know, Jesus was with us. He's dead, and I know he, he rose and all that kind of bit. But what, what does the future hold? And um, then Jesus is there on the shore, and he calls them, put out your net on the other side. They catch fish. They even counted the number of fish. When they get to the shore, Jesus has cooked them a breakfast with fish. So I don't even need your boats and nets to catch fish. He probably just called the fish. He's volunteering to feed the disciples. And they came. But um, he feeds them. He doesn't look at the other 11. Well, now 10. doesn't look at the other 10. But he says to Peter, Peter, if you love me, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. And there's escalations in the Greek word, but we won't go into that. But three times, Jesus says, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Three times, Jesus affirms or gets Peter to affirm his love, and he cancels out the three denials. Then comes this epic thing here, this next verse. And you know, I for years I missed it. But I was standing here last week and I was preaching to you and you were drawing from the message and, and just suddenly I'm going like, oh my word, that's how this message was born. So listen to what, this is right after he said for the third time, Jesus, I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. He said, verily, truly, I tell you, King James, 21, John 21, verses 18 to 23. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. I want you to listen very carefully. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not a lack of prophecy. Imagine coming to the front and I'm going like, by this time next year you will be dead, saith the Lord. But be not afraid, be encouraged. <laughs> I actually heard a prophetess prophesy that one day. God forgive her. So the pastor in charge canceled the prophecy and told them not to prophesy like that. Okay, but yes, Jesus. And he says, when you were young, you dressed yourself, you were everywhere. But when you were old, you're going to be reaching out your hands. Someone's going to, take, someone's going to dress you, and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And then he says, come Peter, follow me. Now, I don't know about you, I would immediately want to then hear everybody else's prophecies. Tell me how they're going to die. <laughs> if we're going to die, it's okay if I'm going to die. But I'm not dying alone. So, okay, start prophesying. Brothers, come. It's prophecy time. Line up. <laughs> Jesus prophesy. And that's more or less the story. But then as they're going and, and Jesus has said to Peter, follow me. He turns and looks. looks listen to what it says. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. That's John who was writing this. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, and Lord, but what about him? So listen to what Jesus says. He says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread amongst the believers that this disciple, John, would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Okay, church, I'm going to just take two, three minutes on this. 
Isn't it amazing? When God begins to deal with us, we start to rate our failings and our weaknesses in the light of others. Well, I'm not so bad as Helga. I mean, Helga is much worse. You know, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm not as bad as, you know, I'm not as bad as Reyna. You must just, you know. And we start to justify, but what about that person? But what about that person? But what about, you know, sometimes, you know, as husbands and wives, we can get into it and we can have a good Barney, which is very healthy, um, as long as we make up, and do, make up the right way. It's good. It's healthy. But the thing is, and we can begin to compare. And then God begins to deal with you. Have you ever had it that you're in the middle of a fight or argument with someone and God starts, immediately starts to speak to you? And your conscience starts to speak, and it's terrible because you've got to defend your ground. You've got to get your say in, you know? But God's taking the wind out of your sails by saying, well, like, what are you doing, you know? I thought you were the pastor. Something like that, you know? Uh, I thought you were a Christian, you know? Something like that. And then we've got to go like, yeah, but, you know, but what about her? Or what about him? What about? What about? And it's one of the biggest things that... Uh, Issues in sanctification that we need to deal with. Stop looking at others. Is that okay? So, many years ago, when I first started, we would be getting all the fallouts, all the rebellious, all the whatever from other churches. They'd all end up here and hear about ACF and come and join. And then they would cause trouble in this church. You know, I was the head usher of this big ministry. I was the worship leader for this. And I was the da 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 da. And they'd come in, talk a big game, but then they would smash the church up and leave and go. And I started to feel like the worst pastor in the whole world. And I was just thinking, God, why is it, you know, you know, all these people that come in and then they rubbish the church, and, but they come in, you know, oh, Pastor John, we're with you. They all prophesy great and glorious things about me. They all prophesy great revival. And then I get them involved, and then they smash the church up and hurt people. And then they leave offended, and then they go on down the road. And I'm going, like, I must be terrible until one day, um, Pastor Carl Sanders phoned me and he said, I was reading an article today and it reminded me of you. And this pastor's wife was telling their story and was exactly like my story. And um, she said, God spoke to her when she said, God, what is going on? She said, God said to her, I didn't bring those people into the church for you to change them. I brought them into the church to make you a better leader. Yeah. Said, I brought them here for you. So embrace the pruning. So the article was, embrace the pruning. And I remember reading that, and the first thing I said was, but Lord, what about them? They came in here, and they caused stink. What about them? And the Lord spoke to me so clearly, and he said, but we're not talking about them. I'm talking about you. And the Lord said to me, I will catch up with them down the road, but that's got nothing to do with you. He said, I love them, and I'm committed to them as I am to you. But right now, right now, I'm dealing with you. I had to get quiet and say, okay, Lord, what is, it, what is it that you want to teach me? What is it that you want to do for me? Imagine Peter, Jesus saying, this is how you're going to die. But what if I want him to live forever? What's that got to do with you? You know, we see people hurting us, other Christians, other people hurt us, and then they go on with life, oblivious of what they've done, seemingly blessed, Seemingly very happy, they don't care, and here we are sitting with the pain, you know, and the hurt. And we're thinking, but God, but what about them? It's got nothing to do with you. Them's got nothing to do with you. God brought that person into your life for that moment, that incident happened for that moment to deal with you. What is your response to that pruning? Amen? Amen. And so there's different responses. Jesus teaches us. That God prunes us, number one, to bear more fruit. Number two, so that we can become more dependent on him, that we can draw him in him to abide more. Number three, God prunes us in order to assure us, to give us assurance that we are truly saved. And here we could go to, we could go to Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, verses 5 to 11, God disciplines those whom he loves. God trains those whom he loves. So it's proof of his love. Number four, God prunes us so that he is able to answer more of our prayers. Number five, and the last thing, God prunes us because then our lives glorify him to bring more glory, to bring fruitfulness out of our lives. So listen, church, the next time something happens,
God has still been good to you. Something negative happens. God has been good to you. Next time someone rejects you or hurts you or says something ugly, God has been good to you. Embrace the pruning. Lord, what are you trying to teach me out of this? It's not that he's cutting off anything. It's that he's cleaning up things. What he's doing is cutting off unfruitfulness to bring more fruit. God is comparing you to his word so that he can synchronize you with his word. So that his word in you can become flesh. Jesus was the word become flesh. Amen? So his word in you will become flesh. So embrace the pruning. Whatever it is. That frustrating employee. Whatever it is. The person that keeps letting you down. Embrace the pruning. The bank teller that is just not on the A game. You know, the waiting queue in the bank. All of those things is God working you. Yes, they can get more jacked up. Yes, they can get more efficient. Yes, the traffic can be better. Yes, the police can do their jobs better. But what is it that God is trying to teach us in the process? What is coming out of us in the process of all of these things? So you've got to recognize these are God's dealings with us. Amen? What is God saying to you? The person that you, you know, had high hopes for to go into business with and let you down, and it didn't pan out what, you know, all of those things is God working on us, God working on us, God working on us to change our character. So let me remind you what Paul says in closing. He says that God's intention is to bring us to the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have loved one for another. And so understand that God is on a track with you. So don't justify it. Don't blame shift. Don't measure your sin. Don't immediately turn around and say, yeah, but what about that person and what about that person? If two of you blew it and got into it and you both blew it, you be the one that goes and repents and says sorry. Amen? And let's grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Did you get anything? So be brave and say, no, I'm the one. I'm sorry. I did do that. I don't know why I did that. I did that. Is that okay? Amen. Let's just bow our heads. Father, I want to thank you. Three messages where you've really spoken to us. Your word has gone out. Lord, you committed to our character more than you committed to our comfort. Our character means more to you than our comfort. Truth, truthfulness means more to you, Lord, than even the provision of finances. Father, I want to thank you that you are dealing with each one of us personally. That you take seriously our growth in holiness, our growth in righteousness. And Father, we want to just as a church welcome you again this morning and say, Lord, come speak to us, come deal with us. Lord, you have full permission as our Lord and Savior Lord, to prune anything that is unfruitful, to bring it into more fruitfulness. Father, we want to thank you for the times when things are not easy, when things are tough, when things aren't going our way. We want to thank you for those times because, Lord, we realize it's in those times you can get our attention, you can shape our character, you can deal with our personalities. Lord, it's in those times that we become a, aware, more aware of how we actually respond. Mm. Anyone can behave in good times when things are easy. So Father, we thank you for it. We give you permission to continue. We embrace the pruning for our lives. Lord, we want you to be glorified in all things that we do. In Jesus' name. We all agreed and said, Amen. 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 The Lord bless you. The Lord be good to you. The Lord continue to make his face shine upon you. Amen. 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 The Lord be good to you, be gracious to you. The Lord prosper you, bless you. The Lord heal you. The Lord touch you in every way. May God cause you to prosper and be in health even as your souls prosper in Jesus' name. No strategy of the devil shall prosper. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. You shall refute every tongue raised up against you. There's no plan of the enemy that will succeed. Only the plans of God will succeed in your life. You shall prosper. Amen. Amen.